Welcome to Office Hours with John Gardner. The John N. Gardner Institute for Excellence in Undergraduate Education strives to advance higher education's larger goal of achieving equity and social justice. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. This is John Gardner. I want to welcome you to our latest version of my office hours with John Gardner. And I've been looking forward for about 35 years to having this conversation with a gentleman who just reminded me and everybody, we can call him Arthur, not as in the Arthurian legend, but in keeping with his own legend. And I'm referring to Arthur Levine. Uh, who uh, is a recovering former college president and uh, still not recovering because he's still flourishing as a public intellectual and as a um, intellectual and in some ways uh, perhaps uh, spiritual in the sense of what matters most, uh, counselor and guide for all of us who want to improve, especially undergraduate education. And um, you'll see why very shortly, but I suspect many of you who are listening to this conversation already know why. Uh, so I want to thank you in advance for agreeing to this. And uh, as you know, this is a series where we're focusing on innovation and we're trying to help people at all levels of their careers, especially in higher education, um, develop what I would hope to be some epiphanies, some transformative insights uh, into how they could become more effective as innovators in, in and for higher education. So um, I would like if you would to start Tom, us one out. Quickie. It's always yeah. wonderful to talk to you. I've been really <laughs> looking forward to this opportunity. And thank you well, for thank your you. very generous introduction. Well, thank you. It's just great to still be alive and to hear these introductions, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The being alive part is very important. Yeah, it's a, as I hear some people saying, be, uh, being above the grass or whatever. Um, Art, I, I would love to hear you give our listeners um, a kind of summary overview of your career with some touch points in it that you think connect to innovation. Um, you know, you've got a number of decades here that you could call on, which is my way of saying to my guests that this is a person of tremendous inf- insight and uh, vantage points on the evolution of higher education in our country. So a synthesis art, your life. Immediately after grad school, I went to work for, I guess I was still in grad school. I went to work for Clark Kerr and the Carnegie Council on Policy Studies in Higher Education. And that was this amazing experience. One, Clark's the best mentor I've ever had in my life. And second, it was a chance in which I was actually getting paid to study what was going on in higher education. It was an extraordinary opportunity to write some books. And then when Clark retired, I went, Ernie Boyer inherited me, and I went to work for Ernie Boyer. And again, it was a chance to work on some real issues. After that, I became president of a small, troubled liberal arts college called Bradford College. And what I really wanted was a chance to try the things I've been writing about at a real institution. And Bradford gave me a chance to reinvent a college. After Bradford, I went to Harvard where I was heading the higher education program 
and something called the Institute for Educational Management. And again, what was exciting about that was at the time, the Institute had hit some bumps and it was a chance to reinvent what it was they were doing. I guess what came next was I became president of Teachers College at Columbia. And here was an institution that for seven years had been running deficits. And the question was, how do you save it? How do you bring it into a new century? And so I stayed there for 12 years. And then I went to the Woodrow Wilson Foundation. And Woodrow Wilson, again, was an institution in trouble. And when I was first interviewed for the job, I recommended the board close it and declare victory. And they said they wouldn't be willing to do that. So I said, um, well, here are three things you can do. And they offered me the job as president of the foundation, I guess, next day. And I was only consulting. I wasn't interviewing for a job. And they stayed with me for three months. And we agreed on what the foundation would do and the new directions it would take. And um, I took the job. And I stayed there for 13 years. And that's been my career. Hmm. I'm sure our listeners describe Clark Kerr. I'm going to describe him as one of the truly the, the icons of our profession in the 20th century. You you were mentored by him. You said that he was the best mentor you ever had. Uh, for people who are listening to you, Art, much more than me, what does it mean when you describe somebody as the best mentor? Um, what, if you could be the best mentor for someone, what, what does that mean? In my case, what it meant was... Putting Clark into historical perspective, Clark Kerr was one of the few historically important figures in American higher education in the post-war era. And what I mean by that is he did for the research university what Henry Ford did for cars. He multiplied the research university. He gave it a name, the multiversity. He created a master plan for the state of California which included three sectors of higher education, a university sector, which only took the top 12.5% of all students. That was the elite sector, a math sector, which took the top third, and that was the state colleges, and um, an open access sector, the community colleges. And then finally, when he finished that, Clark looked at all the work that had been done during that era and got a chance to look for the holes. And he issued a series of several scores of books and policy recommendations aimed at um, policymakers, universities. He got a chance to improve upon the basic model of the industrial area university in the United States. And what made him a great mentor was that he didn't have a lot of an ego. What he did was he took me under his wing. I came as a research associate, and when I left, I was a senior fellow at the foundation. And he gave me all these books to write, and he worked with me. I'm writing them. And then after that, he looked. He gave me advice. The one piece of advice I really remember was I'd been offered a tenured professorship at a university, and 
it just didn't feel right. And I went to Clark and I said, what do I do? He said, okay, take a piece of paper, draw a line down the middle. On the right side, put a plus sign. On the left side, put a minus sign. And he said, under the plus side, write all the things that are good about the job. And if they're really good, give them two pluses. And he said, on the negative side, give them, uh, list all the bad things and give them two negatives if they're really bad. He said, then you add it up. And if there are more pluses than minuses, you decide to do the job. And I said, that's it. That's the best advice you can give me. He said, oh, yeah, one more thing. Listen to your stomach after that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's the best advice I ever got on choosing jobs, ever, ever, ever. So you didn't yeah. take the job, right? You didn't take I the did. job. I didn't yeah. take the job. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, well, um, when you look at this uh, history that you've just uh, outlined, could you could you um, identify perhaps one where your the the plus and the minus was most in agreement with your gut about the context in which you were most successful as an innovator? You know, when when did that all come together for you in in the most successful fashion? Do you think? And and what what were some of those factors that came together? I don't think that I've ever been found those decisions ever, ever easy. And one of the reasons is that I've always looked for jobs in troubled institutions. What I've always looked for is a chance to turn them around. So that every time I walked into a job, there was a really good chance I could fail. And so I um, made decisions. They seemed right. I got lucky. They worked out. But they could have been enormous failures, every one of them except for my first job with uh, Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I've heard you speak recently, I heard you speak at the uh, New England Association of Colleges uh, in December. And your your view of currently of American higher education is that it's kind of like a college in trouble. And uh, uh, it would be grandiose. Uh, you're not Mr. Putin, certainly, thank God. And you're, you know, you can't, transform all of American higher education. But what if we could look at, if you would please look at us as an institution, give us give us our, your argument right now for how we're troubled and what you think needs to be done about that. I think that uh, American higher education has never been in the position it is now with the exception of the Industrial Revolution when they faced exactly the same problems dramatic demographic change, dramatic economic change, and dramatic technological change. Mm -hmm. And during that era, what happened was higher education was transformed. The colonial college, the classical curriculum, didn't work in industrial America. And instead, they did away with that college, and they created universities. They created technical institutions. They created land-grant colleges. They created research institutions. They created community colleges. In essence, the old college disappeared. And we're in a similar kind of era right now in which we're going to see another transformation for the same reasons. And probably the five most important changes we're going to see are these. First, we're going to see a whole bunch of new providers of higher education, 
non-collegiate providers. Um, things like, um, boy, why won't it come to me? Uh, things like the major platforms for things, things like edX, um, that are all going to be offering instruction in higher education. And they're going to be doing it 24-7. They're going to be doing it in unbundled packages, courses rather than whole degrees. They're going to be doing it in terms of um, much lower cost. They're going to offer advantages that things like Amazon offer to us in other fields. Second thing that's going to happen is that we now all have digital devices almost universal now. And because they are, and because the internet, students are going to demand exactly the same thing from higher education. They're demanding from the music industry, from newspapers. They're going to want to pay low prices. They're going to want to have it whenever they want it, 24-7 access, any place access. They're going to want to have this thing. Um in unbundled packages, they're going to demand that of us. And there'll be other providers that can give it to them. We're also going to see the rise of just-in-time education. Right now what's happening is we offer just-in-case education, which is to say um, we offer students four-year programs that are prospective. They offer the skills and knowledge students will likely need for the future. What we're going to find as a result of automation as a result of COVID and the job changes, and as a result of the half-life of knowledge getting shorter and shorter, is that people are going to keep coming back to higher education for upskilling and reskilling. They're going to want certificate programs, they're going to want short programs, and they're going to want education now. Instead of just in case, they're going to want just in time. And if I had to guess, that'll be the new majority of students. And finally, Industrial societies ask for very different things than do knowledge economies, which is what we're entering. And rather than focusing on time, fixing time, fixing process, knowledge economies only care about outcomes. What that means is a shift from focus on teaching to a shift to a focus on learning. What it means is that four-year programs won't make sense anymore. People advance according to how much they learn and how long it takes them to learn. Education become much more individualized, much more use of technology. Things like credits won't have any meaning anymore in a time in which all we care about is learning. Things like the current grading system, A through F, won't work either because learning-based education is outcome-based. It only cares, it's only pass-fail. Either you've achieved the outcome or you haven't achieved the outcome. A through F grading doesn't give us any information about that. It's going to be an entirely different world that's coming to us. And every college will face those challenges, all four of them. What are the implications that you see from this for the... Um the future of democracy and uh, what, yeah what kind of higher ed system are we going to need to 
prevent future January 6th from toppling our government? I'm glad we have some easy questions to deal with now. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things that scares me most about what's coming. And the reality of every college will face these challenges. And some, particularly community colleges and regional universities, are likely to be to be disrupted. Some, like some residential colleges where it's still 20% of students attend, will be preserved. And so will research universities. So neither of the numbers we have now. And finally, some institutions going to close. What I fear in all of this happening is that we'll create two separate and unequal systems of higher education. One that'll be what's familiar to us now, which is residential, full-time, and in-person will only be available to those who have resources. And for those who don't, we'll offer them as online programs that will take part-time, and there'll be no face-to-face attention. What I fear if we create that is that the second world I just described is one in which students study what it is they want to study. What I fear is that common learning that that exists now in the form of general education and other notions of liberal education will all but disappear. I fear that with the huge divisions between us now that we can't afford to lose that. And I think colleges have to double down, particularly traditional colleges, on providing those things. And for most Americans, we're going to need is for secondary schools to play a much larger role in ensuring that we all have that common education because we won't find it in college anymore for most Americans. And yet, as we're seeing, there's tremendous conflict about what we do or don't want to see in secondary education. You know, the amount of censorship and um, political intrusion in the curriculum doesn't look too good for democracy for me. I don't think it looks good for anybody. What I'd really love to do now and what I'm really investigating now is whether it'd be possible to create the equivalent of freedom schools. That is, after-school programs summer programs, vacation programs that focus on all those texts that are being banned and being offered to students for free. And maybe we'll have to do this. Like we're probably going to have to deliver abortion only from some states and to provide it at minimal or no cost to those that will live in American states where they can't get this. Correct. I think the reality is we've been through this before with these sharp divisions. The late 19th century was like this, in which wealth was concentrated because of the new industrial power that was being created, and in which the poor became poorer and more education was needed than ever before. And we managed to get through it, though a lot of people were hurt. Regulation and change in regulations to make the system more equitable took almost a century to deliver. The difficulty now is that we can't wait a century for these changes to occur. And second, 
that we can be so much more damaging to each other, given the kinds of tools that are available to us and the internet than we were in the past. If we can make it through the next couple of decades, we will survive this. But it's not obvious to me that we can. I'm thinking about a number of memories I have of you. And when I was much younger, I was very moved by a book that you produced. I forget who your co-author was. I think it was a woman, uh, but it was called When Dreams and Heroes Died. And uh, here recently, we've seen in the past uh, year and a half, a lot of our dreams about what we um, wanted uh, President Biden to be, these dreams seem to have died. At the same time, um, some of the uh, dreams that some of us may have had about Mr. Trump, they're dying, too. Last night, we learned on CBS 60 Minutes that Mr. Trump asked his former secretary of state um, if he could suppress demonstrations in Washington by having the army shoot demonstrators in the legs, not not kill them, but just, you know, disable them. Um, so here we are on both sides of the political house. It's getting harder and harder for us to conceive of heroes. When I had my own undergraduate students, I used to ask them if they had any heroes or sheroes and conversations were fascinating, but I, um, what did you, should you be revisiting that thesis of yours and not necessarily to think in terms of heroes, but what what could American higher education put out there now for our students to really respect and to help their aspirations uh, instead of getting them ready to conform and uh, settle for less? And uh, I mean, you and I were alive and active in the 60s when, you know, we had, I, I didn't meet a cause I didn't want to be part of in the late 60s. And uh, we expected our universities to... Um, you know, cater to people like you and me, but I don't think that's what's happening now. We're we're producing very good conformists. Um, I don't know your your reaction on um, where we are today about when dreams and heroes died. I wrote dreams and heroes in '79. Mm-hmm. I subsequently redid the study in the '90s with Jeanette Curitan, and then I did it in the 2000s. 2012 with Diane Dean. And what happened was students became, dreams did die, and they were never resurrected. But they changed this extent. When you ask students who their heroes were in 2012, the most common answers were their parents. This is a generation of kids that are both more global, seeing themselves as part of a global community of their generation, and also far more local in how they think about problems. They're not political, but they are problem-oriented. I can't speak for the children, for the kids, for the college students who went through the pandemic, but up until the pandemic, they're exactly the way I'm describing them. And I suspect that's real. I think colleges and universities that focus on service activities that involve local communities, activities that involve issues that are in fact tractable and differences can be made, not in changing whole policies perhaps, 
but in changing individual lives can be enormously potent in terms of shaping today's college students. I think I'm basically an optimist in spite of all the things I've said so far. I'm still working on the issues and trying to change institutions. I'm still focusing on all kinds of policy policy issues. And I guess every office I've ever had, nope, starting with Harvard, every office I ever had, I had a statue of Don Quixote. (laughs) And I can't be Don Quixote anymore. I'm too old to go after causes that have no chance of being solved. But I think all of us can pick issues in which we can make a difference, in which is possible, in which you see something that can be done. It's sort of like talking about the freedom schools. That's something that's doable. If you only do it in one community, that's unfortunate, but it's good. If you can do it in lots of communities, that's even better. Yeah. So we... I'm very confident that we have some people listening to you right now that either have picked or could pick, in your words, an issue around something that could be done. And I remember, Art, a really memorable conversation, memorable for me, probably not for you unless I remind you of it. But I had a conversation with you when I was 44 years old. It was in 1988. And you told me that if I wanted to amount to anything, I had to become a college president, that I'd have much less opportunity to do that. And uh, I thought about that, and I thought about that. I mean, I, it really weighed heavily on me. And for a lot of reasons, it was never in my cards. But instead, it, it became in a specific objective of mine to uh, not to prove you wrong, but to try to amount to something and have an influence on higher education without becoming a college president. So I want to translate that to our listeners. Aside from being a college president, which some of them either are or will be and will have this opportunity, what are some other things that other uh, actual and potential innovators that you you believe they can do to, as you just said, Choose an issue around something about which something can be done about it. I mean, what if this were a seminar? What it is kind of, it's an office hour around innovation. Talk to our listeners about um, becoming more successful as innovators. What what's your experience taught you about that? John, I was clearly wrong. In your case, you've had an extraordinary influence on American higher education. And The reason I believed that at the time was it was something Ernie Boyer told me. I told Ernie Boyer what I wanted to be was professor of higher education. And he said, why do you think that would matter? (laughs) And I said, look at David Reisman. And he said, people listen to David Reisman, but they don't do what he recommends. You have to have done it to show that you can do it. And I think the combination has worked for me. It's given me a chance to study issues and then to try them out and practice as a president. So I sort of alternated back and forth between research, writing, and speaking and trying to head an institution and trying to institute those ideas. 
Well, it's become clear to me in every role I've ever had. I've met people who used it to innovate. One of the reasons I decided I couldn't be a college professor permanently is because I met a guy named Gary Orfield. Gary Orfield is now a professor at UCLA. And what he did when we were at Harvard was he served, um, he brought together all kinds of students and faculty from around Harvard to work, work on issues of equity. He became a court-appointed guardian for some institutions. He testified in court cases. He became a leader in making change on equity issues. And I realized I could never do that. It just wasn't a life that I had the capacity to mirror. And instead, I concluded I'd be better off balancing back and forth. But the bottom line is that it's possible to create change from almost any position in higher education. You can do it by running a major organization as you have and championing the important ideas that can make tomorrow better. You can do it by working in a foundation. You can do it by being a professor and working in your field. You can do it by working in a state organization and trying to make policy make more sense. You can do it in a policymaker and government. You can do, you can use any position you want to try to change the world. It depends upon what the changes you want to make and the level which you're willing to bring it about. And if you're willing to think small, small is the wrong word. If you're willing to think locally, there's no position from which you can't do it. Nationally, the grounding for doing that is smaller but still you can start the campaign, the issue, work on the cause from any of the host of positions I just described. You mentioned um, David Reisman. Um, That really captured me because I'd like to use for our listeners a dichotomy that uh, Reisman invited all of us to think about in his 1953 book, The Lonely Crowd. Uh, Reisman, for some of our listeners who don't know, was a Harvard uh, professor, a lawyer, and a sociologist, uh, unquestionably one of the most uh, prominent sociologists of the 20th century. And this book he wrote was for um, academics, but it really did well amongst the lay community. And it argued that um, America produces two kinds of people, what he called an interdirected person and an outer directed person. The outer directed person, meaning someone who looks around her or him, sees what other people are doing and immediately wants to emulate that. The inner directed person being more one who marches to the beat of her or his own drummer and um, is willing to often go, you know, contrary to some of the dominant directions. Now, this had a tremendous influence on me, Art, because I was asked to read this book in 1961 when I was failing a course in college in my first year. My professor asked me to read this, um, along with um, um, the uh, um, well. I don't. I won't, don't need to give you the other book, but anyway, I, I remembered it and. Uh, I realized he was trying to ask me to think about, was I going to be an inner-directed or an outer-directed person? And I, I never dreamed that Reisman would reach out and write me a letter 
which he did 19 years later. And he wrote me a letter about an article I'd written and had published in the Journal of Higher Education. And it was an article about something really he had done. No, his letter to me was about something he'd done. He was the founder of the first year seminar at your former uh, institution, Harvard. And we were talking about why, what does Harvard have in common with all other post-secondary institutions about how you get students started into uh, a a good life in America and these so-called first-year seminars. So, Art, where am I going with this? I'm thinking you, I know, I'm nothing, I know you are what Larissa talked about as an interdirected person. And I think, Art, if we could have more people like you and to a lesser extent me who could produce some more interdirected people through American higher education, we might be better off as a country. Now, what do you say to that, Art? Do you see yourself as an interdirected person? Um, have you been trying to create, not, not intentionally to clone yourself, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, certain kinds of uh well, you used the word outcomes, the outcomes of the academy, that if we were more innovative, uh, innovative, I'm saying we could produce more interdirected people. What do you think, Art? I agree with you. I think one of the things I had going for me in being interdirected is that I'm an extraordinary introvert, which you wouldn't know if you'd seen me publicly. I'm an introvert who's always had jobs that require an extrovert to do them. So I've essentially played as an extrovert. But my greatest strength has really been the fact that I have been somewhat separate. And it was the capacity to see trends and where they might go. Mm-hmm. I've been very lucky in seeing how they fuse and integrate in terms of seeing what's going to come next. And have I taught people to try to innovate? Yeah. Every job I've ever had has been about that. When I headed the Institute for Educational Management at Harvard, which was a program for presidents, vice presidents, and deans, we took 95 a year. And one of the major foci of the program while I headed it was innovation and change. Most of the writing I've done has been about innovation and change. It's what I talk to audiences about most often. It's what I worked with graduate students on. It's how do you take what we have and make it better? How do you see a different future and create it? And it's scary. And everybody doesn't have the capacity to do that. Some people are much more comfortable um, working with things that are fairly well. I once taught a course on the presidency with another fellow in higher education named Dave Brenneman. And Dave was an economist. And his career was more like mine than anybody else I knew. We both worked in think tanks. He worked in Brookings. We both become college presidents. He was at Kalamazoo. And we both had gone to Harvard to be professors. Later, he went to head the Ed School, University of Virginia, and I went to Teachers College. When we taught a course, we realized neither of us would take the same college presidency. What Dave wanted was a school that was in pretty good shape, and he could take it to the next level. It would have been a horrible mistake to hire me for that job. I'd have destroyed a quality institution. 
<laughs> what I, I always wanted was something that was broken that I could try to fix. Part of it's just orientation. Part of, part of it is a set of skills that we can help people develop. You said a, a minute ago that one of your capacities, I think it was your word, and I would say, I would use instead the word gifts, is that you've been very prescient. Uh, you've been able to make a number of predictions. And you may have even have been able to generate uh, self-fulfilling prophecies here. But I think one of the things that might be most quoted from this conversation is some prediction you make in part about yourself because you have the most control over what you do. So are, what what's going to be what's next for you? You don't have to do anything anymore. I, I say this about myself. The jury is in. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. You don't have a, a gun belt to notch. So what's your next, your next, whatever um, you're, you've got all these choices you can make with your time and your talents, your prescience. What's next? Art Levine. It's easier to tell you what's not next. <laughs> and what's not next is I've written my last book on American higher education. It's a book that sums up my thinking over a career. What I'm also not interested in is another full-time job. Um, I've done that. I'm enjoying speaking. I'm enjoying writing. I'm enjoying consulting. And there'll be a project that comes up. It's sort of like my notion of freedom schools, that I think I can do this. It can make a difference. And I can really enjoy making this happen and make a contribution to. This um, truly makes you a man for all seasons. And... Um, I, I salute you for that um, that wonderful process, and I, I hope others will try to emulate you. And I hope they'll listen to this conversation more than once. John, you need to get somebody to interview for this series. I need to get somebody you, to work. To interview you for this series. <laughs> you have so much to contribute. Nobody I know in higher education has been more of a force for innovation and change and positive good in the field than you. And we need to hear what you have to say about how you did it. Thank you, Art. I, I have been trying to speak much less in these than my guests. And I've actually have a, had a couple of people who measure this electronically. And so far I'm succeeding and I would have to violate that norm if I were to do that. But I, I'm talking Maybe. about a single episode. Have somebody interview you for office hours. <laughs> Why don't you suggest somebody to do that? And maybe we'll do that, Art. Or maybe you'll come back and do it. I'd be happy to do it. There are lots of other people out there who do it. <laughs> well, people are definitely going to listen to you. And we're going to be posting this on Spotify and, you know, other uh, podcast sources. And uh, um, it'll be universally accessible and people can do what they want with it. And uh, uh, folks, listen to this again. It, it, you really need to. I'm going to. And uh, Art, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you for having me.
Thank you. I'm so glad we're still trying to do good things for higher education in our respective ways and um, keep it up. And you my too, my friend. That's what you're going to do. Thank you for telling us not what you're going to do, but what, what you're not going to do. But you also told us what you are going to do, therefore. Thank you, Art. Thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for Office Hours with John Gardner. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Gardner Institute, and we wish to thank our guests and the entire team who make this podcast possible.